I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. When the winds will stop and the breeze will cease to be breathing, like the stillness in the wind before the hurricane begins, the hour when the ship comes in. Oh, the seas will split and the ships will hit and the sands on the shoreline will be shaking. Then the tide will sound and the wind will pound and the morning will be breaking. Oh, the fishes will laugh as they swim out of the path and the seagulls, they'll be smiling and the rocks on the sand will proudly stand the hour that the ship comes in. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about when the ship comes in from 1964's The Times They Are a Changin' is fellow Bobcat, Kevin Ellis. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I... Oh, let me peel back the curtain a little bit for everybody. A little while ago, Kevin emailed me <laughs> and talked about that he wanted to do the show, which I'm always happy to hear. I love hearing from new people. And uh, to sort of um, establish his bona fides, which were not necessary, but he did this anyway, he sent me a list of all like 900 <laughs> Bob Dylan songs uh, ranked in order of how are they ranked to you, in your preference? I just how they do ranked? objective greatness, you know, the clear difference between favorite and what is objectively influential or great. <laughs> so I tried to focus on the latter, but I had to cut myself off at around 900. Yes, it was truly the work of an insane person. So I was like, exactly. well, we I have to provide this man an outlet for this love of Bob Dylan before he goes crazy. So thank you so much for, for reaching out. And as I said, we're going to be talking about when the ship comes in, which is actually one of my uh, kind of quiet favorites uh, from the man's catalog. But before we get to all of that, uh, I have to ask you, since this is your first time on the show, like, how did you become a fan? Well, first of all, let me just say that every time I love Pod Dylan deeply and literally. Right. You don't need you don't need to wax the car, Kevin. It's I, fine. I'm You're already, already here. here. Uh, but let me just say that I have never made it through an episode of this show without pausing at like the six minute mark, belting the song at the top of my lungs and then going back <laughs> and finishing up what you guys were actually talking about. So you do a good job of tantalizing and is right. that the goal? But how did I get into Bob Dylan? You know, I've heard a lot of people's answers to this and mine is fairly in the same vein. I can remember the first time I heard his voice very specifically. I was riding in the back of my mom's car in Massachusetts when I was in fourth grade and Rainy Day Women came on the radio and I was instructed not to repeat anything that I heard on the radio in school the next day. Uh, and that stuck out to me as like, ooh, there's a danger to this guy. Mm. What does everybody must get stoned mean? And I need to know. Uh, and so, like, I didn't think much of it at the time being a youngster. Uh, and then at around age 13 or 14, when I was in middle school, I decided, you know what? I'm a massive, like, Beatles fan uh, already at that point. And I kind of wanted to hear what surrounded the Beatles. And I made a, a quest to listen to every album from the 60s that I could. My very first one was Highway 61 Revisited. Oh, man. Good place to start. It is a massively good place to start, like top starting at the top of Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember so clearly 
having the thought, and I am proud of this to this day, the first time I ever heard Like a Rolling Stone, I thought, you know, I can't say that I like him more than the Beatles because this is my first song of his, but I think he definitely has a better voice. And that was something that proved mega controversial amongst <laughs> anyone that I said that to, but it is something I defend to this day. Um, Hashtag hot take. <laughs> it is the hottest take you can have, yes. And so uh, from there, basically, I have built my entire career around keeping people pinned to chairs while I ramble about my thoughts on his work. Uh, as I've become a college instructor at a variety of schools in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and literally every class, whether it is supposed to be or not, uh, has become based around Bob Dylan. Every student has a lyric presentation where they have to present on a different Bob Dylan song that I assign them or that they choose. <laughs> and it is literally just, you want to talk about an output for my insanity. I am paid somehow to do this, and it is miraculous. Oh my good good on you sir. That's fantastic. Oh my god. Good. What are, what are these people's what are these kids reactions to, to you doing this? Are, are I guess some of them are kind of groaning and some of them are into it. I mean, how does that work? It is a, it's a wonderful mix of the two because I get some students that uh, you know, I, I wouldn't even say half-ass it, some quarter-ass it and they'll go in and they'll say things like I think tangled up in blue is about uh, I don't know, blue, like police uniforms, like he's in trouble with the cops. Uh, and like, they'll be, I'll be like, oh, okay. You know, I've never heard that before, but keep going with it. Uh, and then I'll have <laughs> students, like I had just a student this morning, uh, give like a 25 minute presentation about Joker man. Uh, and afterwards was telling me like, you know, I knew his 60s stuff, but like you made me believe that like he has stuff beyond that. And like, if they knew what words like that meant to me, my goodness gracious, that is fuel. I require no food when I hear sentences. <laughs> uh, and so, like, it's, beautiful. it's a great mix. And uh, he's certainly on the syllabus a lot. And that uh, when the ship comes in is always on the syllabus. It's one of the first things we read. All right. That's fa oh, that is fantastic. I, I That makes me very happy to hear that, that some of them, you know, kind of go, whoa, hey, wait a minute. This is pretty cool, exactly. you know? So that's. That is fantastic. Well, that's that is that is wonderful. Of course, normally at this point, I would also ask you, have you ever seen him live? But I already know the answer to that question because I know that at the time of you and I talking tonight, you have just seen Bob at the Beacon. Uh, so I, we haven't talked about. It, so what were how many shows did you see, and what were your thoughts about him? Oh my goodness gracious! I do not know where you purchased this can of worms, but I am sure happy that you snapped it right open right now. So I saw him at the Metropolitan Opera House uh, in Philadelphia uh, on November. I guess it was November twenty first. Uh, and then I just went to a stretch of three consecutive Beacon shows uh, in the past week. Um, one just by myself, which was the first time I had ever done that. Uh, and then two with uh, my, my girlfriend and a couple of friends. And my God, if there is a better place to see Bob Dylan than the Beacon Theater in New York City, I am yet to find it. That was actually the 13th time I have seen him at that venue alone and 60th total. So I am... Holy! Oh, wow! <laughs> I am right oh. high right now. Uh, and uh, yeah, it has been quite the ride. And the Beacon shows in particular... I have not seen a Bob Dylan show that I didn't like. I've not seen a Bob Dylan show that wouldn't be worthy of that placement, which they all could be, of the last show that you ever see, the, the last night you ever spend with the man. Uh, but these Beacon shows were particularly special. 
Uh, I know in your last episode you were talking about the fall 2019 tour and gushing over when I paint my masterpiece. And mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. goodness, if this isn't the definitive version of this song, I, I just don't know what is. And it's just some of the most spectacular vocal performances that I've heard him do were just in this last week. And I think that the set list is just perfectly designed to be both musical and an emphasis on the lyrics. Uh, like, I don't necessarily miss the Sinatra stuff, but, like, he's keeping that voice that he sung with the Sinatra stuff on uh, some of the newer material in particular. Uh, and it has been a highlight. And who, what other artist can say that they are still achieving highlights uh, in their 78th year? You know, it's crazy. It, it really is. It's un, it's unreal, the sort of response he's getting. And it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I don't read too much of the critical reviews of it because most yeah. of the part, most of the time I don't, I don't care because I know how I feel about it for the most part. But it, it's sort of funny to read some of these reviews where they're like, wow, Bob Dylan's been doing some great concerts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, 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 hot slash, you know, hashtag hot take. You yes, know what I mean? Like, exactly. yeah, no kidding. You know, the rest of us have known that for, oh, I don't know, 25 years now. You know, it's like, thanks for your catching up with the rest of us, buddy. Uh, precisely. And, you know, I've been to uh, concerts like five, six years ago where like the crowd seemed mostly, uh, you know, I can't base this off statistics, but it seemed mostly like people that were looking for a 60s style show. Uh, I can remember one lady in particular turning around during like when he had the intermissions a few years ago and asking me, uh, do you think he'll play Tangled Up in Blue? And I said, he just did, you know, like they're not even aware that there was something performed on the stage feet in front of them. Uh, and so it's definitely a wild experience for some people. But I've noted in these last few shows, a lot of younger people, uh, which is kind of nice to see that his music and his style is kind of uh crossing the boundary uh, a little bit more now than even before uh, in my personal, you know, vision. It's it's a great thing to see, you know, for, for for those of us who love him so much and when he comes around and it's so exciting. And, you know, I, I'm this isn't the first time I've said this on the show and I'm not the first person to say such things. But, like, why is there not a box set of, like, the never-ending tour or, like, the last 10 years? Like, how many shows does Sony need to I, bank it is, before they start putting some of these things? I mean, what are they – what are you waiting for, guys? It is very true. I mean, you could put out a 2,000-track collection of just his all along the watchtowers at this point. I, uh, and, like, I think a few years ago, the Dylan camp noticed that anything that they put the term Bob Dylan on, people like me are going to buy it. Uh, mm -hmm. And, like, if they released a mega deluxe edition that was $400,000 worth of this material, I'd sell every organ I have uh, <laughs> to, to hear it all. And so, yeah, it has been crazy. And, like, you know how, like, fangirls in high school will write the teacher's name in cursive on their paper. Sometimes I'll doodle and I'll think, all right, what will the bootleg series volume 23 be? Uh, <laughs> and I can only hope that there's one that focuses specifically on, you know, even Tempest to present because it's yeah. some of the best work he's done yeah it's they're just the the material that's piled up it's just got to be it's got to look like the uh the, the final shot of Raiders of the lost ark yes. you know just these crates and crates of stuff and i again it's just, i don't know what you guys are waiting for to put some of this stuff i mean even even a single cd 
Exactly. Just of some, you know, live Bob Dylan live field recordings of the last five years yes. would be amazing to hear these guys play. Uh, yeah, that's just... something I've wondered. That it seems like I guess since the bootleg series started coming out, they've kind of decided. All right, we're done with live albums. We'll just include like live stuff in occasional bootleg series uh, outlets. And I don't know. I feel like uh, Porqueno los dos, as a friend of mine would say. Like I think like there's a show I went to. The furthest I've ever gone to see him was Barolo, Italy. Uh, wow. Went there for three days just to get that in. It was a graduation gift from the Mumski. And uh, that concert alone, which I've heard bootlegged, you know, online, would make for a magnificent, uh, like, live release. And it is curious why they feel like uh, keeping this on the down low is the better strategy. Yeah, yeah. Um, not to go too far much down this road, but I do. I want to ask you, like, did you have a particular favorite? performance of the songs you saw of the concerts you saw um well the barola one obviously sticks out because it's such an unusual setting uh but like the the beautiful thing about bob dylan i feel like is you know open air yes that works uh arena style yes that can work but i find the more intimate the setting the better it is and mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. as you were probably exposed to in recent shows it's like you can't even have your phone out before the show begins uh let alone while the show is actually going on uh yeah. there were people sending texts just like half hour before the show start that were being threatened to be kicked out uh, and so I've found that this makes for better shows. It just feels like everyone has to pay attention. Uh, and I can think of, you know, particular performances over the years, like the way he would do Mississippi and Philadelphia years ago. That stands out to me as one of the great live performances I've ever heard. Uh, there was even like uh, long and wasted years I would put on the short list of greatest live songs from his entire career. And I've heard mm -hmm. him do that, you know everywhere that I've seen him uh, in the last few years. But uh, quite honestly, call it recency bias or not. But when <laughs> I paint my masterpiece at the Beacon Theater will be with me for quite a long time. All right. Well, that's that's fin 60 shows, man. That is that is impressive. Well, that is truly, truly impressive. He's got a DC show on December 8th. And what the heck? I'm not busy. Let's see if we can make it 61. <laughs> that is, yeah, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to be frightened. No, I'm very, very envious of it. I really am. I wish I could. I had a friend of mine say, hey, uh, are you going to see the Beacon shows? And I was like, I just saw him in Baltimore. Like, that's going to have to do it uh, yeah. for now. But, man, oh, geez. That's, well, that, that is fantastic. That is just I'm, – I'm so glad that you've sort of been able to transmogrify your love for him into kind of like a – you know, into your, your daily life yep. in terms of your profession. That's really amazing. So that is – oh, man, I'm very happy to hear all that. So – so, yeah, well, let's talk about when the ship comes in. I mean, this song, of course, is from 1960, as I said, it's from 1964's The Times They Are a Changing. Uh, it was supposedly written in a bit of a, um, uh, a peak, a fit of peak, when he was driving around with Joan Baez in 1963. Uh, according to Clinton Halen's book, uh, Bob Dylan, The Life in Stolen Moments, uh, it, it, this took place sometime around August 13th to August 16th. And he was driving around with Joan Baez, and Joan Baez was on tour, and Bob was, I guess, like, doing that thing where he, she was uh, inviting him on stage occasionally. 
And she went to, they stopped at this hotel and they weren't sure that that was the hotel that she had the reservation in. Think about how low tech that is. Like the musician is just driving around in a car, you know, looking for the hotel. Um, And she sends, you know, scruffy young Bob Dylan in to see if uh, if this is the correct hotel. And apparently he goes in and they, uh, the uh, snooty hotel clerk, which you can imagine like something from like a Bugs Bunny cartoon is like, does refuses to give any information to this young man. No, there's no Joan Baez registered here. Bob walks out. Joan walks in, and then they're like, "Oh, Miss Baez." You could just imagine it, like it's something out of like an old 1930s movie. Yeah. And they were, you know, very clearly not uh, not willing, not receptive to this this young kid coming in and asking them about Joan Baez. They assumed that he had nothing to do with her, and that apparently uh, set Bob off. And he went and wrote this song that night. Uh, according to Joan Baez, she like literally sat in the hotel room and watched him write it. So this song is this kind of angry screed at you know the other that you could. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a a, a, a slight ver- version of the times they are changing. You know, where's this kind of like we're we're the new people. We're going to take you know we're the old ways are going to be set aside. Uh, but there's a lot of differences too to from from that famous song as well. So. Kevin, like, why did you want to talk about this one? Well, uh, first of all, that history is certainly one of the reasons. That is just such a peculiar thing to consider that he wrote this in a fit of rage at a, like, Basil Fawlty type, uh, like, hotel <laughs> manager that he couldn't stand. Uh, however, not to cause question onto Joan Baez's tale, uh, but you almost wonder, like, he must have had this at least planned before that night, knowing uh, that he was going to perform it at the March on Washington just like a week or two later. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so like that is something that has stuck out to me. And so I suppose the three main reasons why this song is uh, was one that I really wanted to talk about uh, is that one, it is somehow extremely optimistic while at the same time just full of vengeance and anger. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. don't hear that a lot. Um, you don't hear a lot of Bob Dylan songs that I would describe as optimistic. You know, a lot of them are cautiously optimistic or, you know, just outright pessimistic. And here's a song that seems to it's written in the future tense. You know, Bob Dylan does not really mess around with the future tense too often, let alone for the entire length of a song. Uh, And it's just all about the things that will happen on this beautiful day. And so that kind of structural difference always stands out to me. Uh, But the real reason why this song is one of my favorites and why I think it's interesting to talk about is that it has one of the most absolutely fascinating live histories of any Bob Dylan song. Uh, (laughs) It's been performed live four times, uh, which is an odd number. Uh, If you follow Bob Dylan live performances, sometimes you'll get like 2000. And sometimes you'll get something like, well, he tried it once, didn't love it, or just never. But four is very odd. uh, And the four performances that he did do are all something that, you know, people can hear. uh, And they range basically from absolutely majestic to absolutely dreadful. And that (laughs) that dreadful one that I'm referencing is the most recent performance of it, which was uh, Live Aid in 1985 with uh, Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards kind of strumming on acoustic guitars mindlessly next to him. Uh, that was a concert that was obviously filmed. And so it's like very easy to find the footage of this. And 
it's Bob Dylan in kind of that weird 80s kick where he kind of did a parody of himself uh, and he would go into like, nye, 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 like kind of <laughs> overplaying his own like uh, traditional style. Uh, but going off of that live history, uh, like the first time he ever performed it, the first time most people are hearing this Bob Dylan song because it comes out before the times they are a changing album is that March on Washington, where he's also kind of famously keeping Joan Baez from getting anywhere near the microphone, uh, which is an interesting thing on its own right. Uh, and then those other two times were shortly thereafter when he's playing the song, uh, basically using it as a closer to his set. Uh, October 26, 1963, I have it written down, and uh, May 17th, 1964, uh, the first at Carnegie Hall and the second at the Royal Festival Hall in London. Uh, he closed both sets with it. And it just is odd to me that this would go from a song that he's comfortable closing a set with uh, to a song that he's basically disregarded live ever since, uh, except for that stray Live Aid performance. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's it, for a song that, as you mentioned, he's only played it four t- four times in the last uh, sixty odd year, almost sixty years. Uh, when he has done it, he's done it in these very big, you know, venues. I mean, yeah. like, you know, uh, I mean, for uh, to, to play it on the March on Washington, to play it at, at Live Aid. Uh, now, I will admit, I have to. I get the sense that at Live Aid, uh, he sang it mostly for the one line that's in it, and we, we can go on a little bit from the song he sings. Uh, and the words that are used for to get the ship confused will not be understood as they're spoken, for the chains of the sea will have busted in the night and be buried at the bottom of the ocean. A song will lift as the mainsail shifts and the boat drifts onto the shoreline, and the sun will respect every face on the deck the hour that the ship comes in. Then the sands will roll out a carpet of gold for your weary toes to be a touchin', and the ship's wise men will remind you once again that the whole wide world is watching. I have to think that that line was the line that made him say, let's do this one. Cause that the whole wide world is watching. I mean, good Lord. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, the line from it's all right, Ma, but the president's standing naked and he sang it during Watergate. You're just like, well, this line is just buried in the song and I can dig it out and it's perfect for this moment. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a song that he really kind of made a big deal about when he did perform it live, but they only did it four times. And so it's clearly not something that he, feels is something worthy worthy to do in concert i mean good lord um it's it, but i love this song and it's sort of funny um the, there's two versions that well there's more than two but the two that i'm the most familiar with are the one from the time zero changing where he's playing on guitar and then there's the alternate take from the bootleg series which is uh done with a piano uh, do you have a particular favorite out of those two? Uh, goodness, goodness, yes. So listen, I love the album version. Obviously, it works so well as a folk song. But that piano version, uh, which is the one that on the aforementioned insanity list of 900 that I sent you, I specifically <laughs> noted the piano demo from the Whitmark ver- uh, tapes is just clearly the transcendent one for me. Uh, and I don't, I genuinely can't remember if uh, I thought of this or if I'm quoting like, you know, Clinton Halen or something I read about it, but I, someone had described it as more of a gospel take on the song. And ever since I heard of it, heard that term applied to it, 
I think that really hits the nail on the head because this song really does feel like gospel on that piano version where it's upbeat and it's like talking about hope and optimism and the day that the sun will come up. And like you can totally hear that kind of I mean, it's filled with biblical references already. Uh, and when it's sung that way in that very jaunty, like three chords over and over again style, uh, I think that's the definitive recording we have. What about you? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, once the bootleg series version came out, once I got the bootleg series when it came out in 1991, and I heard the piano version, for the most part, I put aside the the, the record version, and I just always listened to the piano one. There's something, even though the the one on the record is a little faster, which I tend to like. I tend to like songs just played a little on the faster side. I like. I, I love the piano playing on it uh, so much, and I kind of it. I, I think it w- what it might have sounded like if you would put that on the record in the middle of all of these guitar folk songs, and then you have this piano song right in the middle of it. That would have been very, very different sounding. So I like that sound of it. I mean, it there's something about his vocal that is less. It's I, I compared it earlier to Times They Are Changing, and thematically they, there are a lot of similarities to the two. But there's something about the piano version that to me makes it more distinctive from Times They Are Changing, and that's what I really like about that. And so I, I actually really like the bootleg series. Now I can't fault him for putting. It's not like uh, you know where he left off Blind Willie McTowell or Foot of Pride, where you're like Bob, what were you thinking? Uh, but I mean, so I could see why he went for the the version that ended up on the record. But I do like the piano one. A little more. There's just something about the just the simple accompaniment to it, and I'm glad you mentioned about the whole thing about the uh, the, the future tense. It is something really interesting. Is that it's all about what's going to happen. This faith in the future, uh, which is remarkable, especially again when you think about when this record came out. It was not too long after the Kennedy assassination, which. You know, I mean, I had to put people in a mood of like, oh, Lord Almighty, you know, like what's what's happening here. But this is an, you know, very, very upbeat song. And as you say, Bob Dylan doesn't have a whole lot of just straightforward, upbeat songs. But there's just something so pure about this. And the other thing I love about it is even though it was inspired by a contemporary event, which is, you know, presumably, as you say, like a ba- Basil Fawlty type guy mm-hmm. telling this young, scruffy Bob Dylan to go pound sand. It's written with this old-timey language, which gives it this wonderfully timeless feel. I mean, you said it feels like a it feels like a folk song or a gospel song, and it does because the language is. So, I mean, we're talking about people sailing on a ship. Yes. I mean, this is this is. I mean, it's kind of like boots of Spanish leather. So you're like, wait a minute. What? As I've said on a bunch of episodes, you never know what year any of these Bob Dylan songs are happening in. Yes. They don't seem to be taking place. At the time he wrote them. And so that's what I love about it. it. It feels like this is something that could have happened to like a pirate. It just has that feel to it. And that's what I love about it. I am so happy that you say that last thing, because uh, as I said before, this is a song that is always on my syllabus right at the start of the semester. Uh, and what I do is I'll have the students read it. And these are 18 to 22 year old students. And I won't give them any context. I won't even tell them what year it came out. I'll just say, what do you think this what is this song about to you? And the number one response that I get is a very literal interpretation where they're like, you know, is this about pirates that are like sailing ashore and searching for freedom, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, 
you know what? That's not really that far off. And then I'll tell them, okay, now I want us to look at it again. And keep in mind, he wrote it and sang it like right before the I Have a Dream speech in that context in this year. And then everything kind of clicks. And I think that they kind of see the metaphorical nature of the ship. But I love that it can be interpreted. Uh, It's kind of like a great TV show like Breaking Bad or Mad Men, where like you can watch it and feel it like on a very literal level and just be entertained. Entertained, uh, but you can also watch it and like dig really deep into its themes and like explore it in a totally different way. Uh, and that line that you had brought up earlier about how the ship's wise men will remind you once again that the whole wide world is watching, I would put that on a short list of favorite Dylan lines, period, uh, just because it has talk about like this optimistic, like purity of this idea that the wisest people in the country or on the ship are the ones that are letting you know that this moment is bigger than just itself. And that moment, you know, saying that at the March on Washington, saying that just in the early 60s with everything going on is so like beautiful. It's just relentless to think that, you know, Bob Dylan is recognizing that this young man, let's not forget that he's in his low 20s himself when he's writing this, <laughs> is recognizing that this is something that is, again, something that is going to reverberate, not just in America, but across the entire world, if it's done right. Uh, and that kind of danger, that kind of like, uh, you know, fragile nature of the moment is reflected in that line and basically throughout the entire song, which is gorgeous. He was 22 when he wrote this. Insane. 22. Insane. <laughs> you know, like to have that that sense of, of immortality to write a line like remind you once again that the whole wide world is watching it. 22 years old is just sort of just I don't know just staggered by it I mean that's why I guess why I do this show it's just it just keeps coming up and I'm like, I can't believe this guy had this sort of like confidence or at the very least could could project that confidence maybe he himself didn't have it but he certainly sounded like he did and that you know fake it till you make it I mean it's just it's unreal and uh, you know you mentioned uh, how much you loved his voice and you were like oh he's got a better voice than even the Beatles kind of and that is something he really I love the way he sings uh, and and the line when he gets to that line when the whole wide world is watching there's something about the way he kind of rolls the words in his mouth around a little bit there's yeah he, he sounds very very upbeat where he, and I I hate to even try and 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 replicate it because I always butcher it but it's just there's something about the way he stretches out and the whole wide world is watch like he just let, lets it like roll out of his mouth. In a very easy way. And I think that's probably why one of the reasons I prefer the piano take more than the guitar one. Because the guitar one, I think he's just singing it faster. But this one, he seems more relaxed. And the, the again, the, the upbeat part of it is seems so it fits so perfectly i mean the, the song he continues on he says oh the foes will rise with the sleep still in their eye it, it's still in their eyes and they'll jerk from their beds and think they're dreaming but they'll pinch themselves and squeal and they'll know that it's for real the hour that the ship comes in and they'll raise their hands saying we will meet all your demands but we'll shout from the bow your days are numbered and like pharaoh's tribe they'll be drowned in the tide and like goliath they'll be conquered i mean to mention a pharaoh, Goliath. I mean, I mean, we're already kind of in this weird time period where there's pirates, presumably pirate ships, but now we're on biblical terms. You know, it's like we're just mix, mix and matching all this kind of stuff. And I love the idea. And it's sort of funny in the final verse, uh, he's talking about showing your enemies no mercy. 
And yet it sounds so positive. I, <laughs> I mean, the, these people are squealing, you know, we'll meet all your demands. And they, 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 and they, Bob Dylan's cry like, no, 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 your days are numbered. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Wow. That, that's something I love about the song's finish as well, that, you know, there's Bible references throughout, but then they almost start to mount in those last two verses where you get direct ones like Pharaoh and Goliath and drowning in the tide, you know. Uh, and what I love about that is the Bible itself has an almost, you know, hypocritical back and forth between preaching forgiveness and preaching like vengeance against those who sin. Uh, and this hashtag hot take. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And this last verse does exactly that, where it's basically this beautiful, optimistic song that we're praising as one of the most optimistic in his catalog ends by him saying, well, even when people admit they're wrong and say, OK, like we surrender, we should show them no mercy. Because, <laughs> like you can just feel he got angry, like his anger climaxed as he finished writing the song. Uh, and that's like a. A Masters of War style finish where he's just like, I want to watch while you're lowered onto your deathbed. And it's uh, you got to love uh, the anger that he's kept up, you know, throughout all of his writings throughout all the years. Yeah, it's really I said it's he he makes uh, exacting vengeance sound so warm and positive. And it's just yes. kind of amazing, really, when you think about it. I mean, yes, it's this is one of those songs. I just want to hear it. I never, you've talked, you know, you mentioned that it's, it's sort of like a permanent part of your syllabus. And this is, you know, I have all my songs in my, my, uh, my iTunes account, all my Bob Dylan songs, and I make different playlists. And this song returns to my playlist a lot for an, for an obscure song in his yes. catalog. Uh, this one shows up quite a bit because I just I find it so uh, energizing. I mean, again, the line about a song will lift as the mainsail shifts. I love the like, he's singing a line in a song that is doing the very thing he's singing about. The song will lift. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it, it's the it's the wind that is driving the boat, and that's exactly what this song is doing. Exactly, and like there's such a beauty in that, and and going back to like. Uh, Describing the way he is singing this, particularly on the uh, piano version, uh, I think about a line that uh, Stephen Colbert used to say about himself when he was on the Colbert Report, where he would say, I promise, you know, anyone can just tell you the news. I promise to feel the news at you. And ever <laughs> since I heard that, I think about that in connection to Bob Dylan, where like so many people before him and even after him sing the songs, you know, they if there's a line that goes do 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 do, it has to be completed with a do 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 do. But not Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan will emphasize when he feels like it needs to be emphasized, and he will just feel the song. His songs go do 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 do. You know, and it's just relentless. <laughs> and and this version too, as it mounts in that anger, uh, is so stupendous. I also love that we have basically so there's eight verses in this song, uh, and we have the hour when the ship comes in, or some slight variation on that at the ends of, of one, three, five, and seven. And he didn't feel tempted to write that final verse that would kind of complete it with the name of the song. He kind of ends it in the middle of a half. Uh, and I think that that is showing, again, wisdom beyond his 22 years, whereas, you know, a lesser writer might have felt like, I need to keep this consistent. I mean, not even the lines in the previous verses have the same number of syllables in each. You know, he, <laughs> he does not feel confined to even his own structure. Uh, and that's just beyond impressive. 
Yeah, as I said, it's it's a really remarkable song. And this is, you know, for people that only know Bob at a sort of like a surface level, they know the hits or they know whatever. And it's like the it's the it, the part of the thing that keeps me bringing back to this guy is that you dig a little deep and you're like, good, good. These are like classic songs that are buried on these records. You know what I mean? Like this is not a song that probably anybody could could wouldn't reference uh, unless they were a big, deep fan like you and I. And yet, yeah. it's like, God, this thing's like a little minute. This thing's like a little mini masterpiece for Pete's it's, sakes. Exactly. You know? I, I've said before that um, Jonas Salk did not dominate the field of polio vaccine as hard as Bob Dylan dominates pop music. Uh, and like, this is just a perfect example of that because there is literally like, unless you want to say maybe blowing in the wind or like a Rolling Stone, you, you could probably argue that there is about. Every Bob Dylan song is kind of underrated. Uh, you know, it's something that I've definitely <laughs> heard uh, on previous episodes of your own show. Like a lot of people are like, oh, this song is so underrated to me. And it's like they all are underrated because, you know, how do you rank these against each other uh, mm. when they're all kind of mini masterpieces on their own? Uh, and I totally agree. I mean, he when he introduced the song uh, on the Carnegie Hall show in October 1963, uh, and this is something that is that version's on the bootleg series volume seven uh he said beforehand that there were modern goliaths who were crueler than the ones being described in the song uh and he mm. you know he kept it vague uh but he basically was announcing this is a song about right now uh and to you know this is a question that i'll ask my students that they get every single time uh why keep it vague why not say the march on washington why not reference malcolm x or martin luther king and they always will inevitably answer well that keeps it eternal that keeps it you know it can be applied to every generation if they don't keep it specific uh and you know thinking about this song today there's almost an irony in the final verses where like the people admit that they're wrong uh because they've been shown basically proof to the contrary uh and that feels like it's almost slipping away uh and so this is a song you know bob dylan's modern catalog or you know the songs that he's doing live now all to be based in a relative there's kind of a hopelessness you know he'll mix in like make you feel my love a nice one every once in a while but like tempest is like one of the darkest of his entire career and i think that this song would actually be beautiful in uh his current form and i would love to hear uh you know how the current band would go about approaching this uh and so yeah it's a kind of a shame that it hasn't been done since 85 yeah he's been playing the piano lately it's very you know? true i mean he's playing the piano i mean he could do it exactly. so yeah it's uh he's got it yeah i but as, as I'm rereading these words, the, the final words of the, the the words of the final verse, and he's talking about really not giving his enemies any any quarter. Uh, I, I sort of in my head, I picture that gif of there's that like that one guy wearing a, a swastika, uh, like from like yes. last year, and he's got his hands up and he's kind of like hey hey hey, and that guy just decks him. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what yes. this is. You know, it's like, nah, the minute yes. you put a SWAT sticker on, you really don't deserve any mercy, I would say. So I kind of like yes. that this guy's like, no, 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 I'm just going to punch you anyway. I don't care that you have your hands up. You're wearing a SWAT sticker. Down you go. And like, that, that to me is what this final yeah, verse is. You should have realized early. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. Yes. And it, exactly right. Yeah. So somebody needs to score that to, to, the, to the final verse of the song. So, yeah, it's a really great song. And it was it's one of those ones where it's. 
I, as I've mentioned on other episodes, I let the guests pick the songs, and every so often I have some favorites kind of in the back of my head where I say, well, I would love it if somebody picked this one, but I just I don't go out and, and try and I don't try and like uh, feed them to people. I just let it, you know people sort of come to me. But when you mentioned this, one, I was like, oh, fantastic, because I just love this song so much. And I do want to mention two covers uh, that are out there. Of course, at the 30th anniversary concert, uh, which of course I attended, I never fail uh, to mention that. Uh, it was covered by the Clancy yeah. Brothers with Tommy Makeham. They did a very nice version of it. And then there is a cover by the Pogues, uh, which is uh, the definition of the word ramshackle. Uh, I mean, it is just, and that is Shane McGowan, I think, just playing like, let's take a three and a half minute song and play it in two minutes and five seconds. It's just that. And it's fun because it's like a bar song. It just becomes, I mean, I guess most of the you know, poke songs or bar songs, but I mean, it's, it really, it's kind of fun because they're just having like a big sort of beery sing along to it. So that's a fun version. You can hear that on YouTube. It's a, it's a, a, a very honorable attempt at the song. I, I was going to mention that one as well. The, it's like Celtic punk with like a Springsteen yeah. style E street band like <laughs> riff. Uh, and it's just wonderful. Now there's also, and I just heard this relatively recently, the chieftains with the Decemberists, or at least the, the uh, lead singer of the Decemberists, do a version from 2012 uh, that wow. I thought was really, really well done of the cover versions I've heard. I don't love the Peter, Paul and Mary, but that was probably the version that more people heard even in the sixties yeah. when it came out. Um, and not to get off the cover versions discussion, but it's just, I feel like it's so important to note the connections between this song and Pirate Jenny, uh, a song ah, that yes. Bob Dylan references a lot in Chronicles and has brought up in interviews. Uh, and there's just a line in Pirate Jenny uh, where the writer says, when folk ask now just who has to die, you will hear me say at that point, all of them. And when their heads fall, I'll say, whoopee. And that is just so <laughs> clearly an indication of where he was going with that last verse, which is basically like spare no mercy and take pleasure uh, in the unjust getting their just rewards. Uh, and like, I love that influence on it. Uh, and you can hear that. Uh, it's also been connected to The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, which for a while was my favorite song ever, uh, which is obviously mm. on the same album. And uh, like, I, I just love that you can hear influences from places as disparate as film and the Bible and old folk songs all in one place. And yet they don't feel like they belong to anything but the present moment. You know, when he's singing, you never get a sense, oh, he's just ripping off old stuff. This is somebody who's trying to sound like a different time. He made everything feel so new, even when the influences came from places that were wildly older than he. Uh, and it all comes together beautifully here. It sure does. It yeah. sure does. I said it's it's a remarkable song. So, uh, Kevin, thank you so very much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Uh, I just like I said I love this song and I love talking. I mean, I love talking about any Bob Dylan song, but when it's one that's ob relatively obscure and it gets us, we get to get really kind of wax that song's car. Uh, I always enjoy that because I said it's always worth digging deep into the catalog. So, thank you so much for reaching out and thank you so much for coming on. It was a massive pleasure to one be on the show and two talk to someone about Bob Dylan that's not trying to get out of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that, I mean, I have more Bob Dylan. I have more words about Bob Dylan than I will ever say. And even doing this show twice a month is still not enough. It's like, ah, exactly. I wish I could do it. I wish I could do it more than I do it. So, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Of course, everybody, if you want to find back episodes of the show, go to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on uh, Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. We're always talking Bob over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. And of course, if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part, go to patreon.com slash FW Podcasts. And I have to thank Robert Ward and a pledger who will remain masked and anonymous for their support of Pod Dylan. So thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Oh, the time will come up when the winds will stop and the breeze will cease to be breathing. Like the stillness in the wind before the hurricane begins, the hour that the ship comes in. And the sea will split and the ships will hit and the sands on the shoreline will be shaking. And the tide will sound and the waves will pound And the morning will be a breaking A song will lift as the mainsail shifts And the boat drifts unto the shoreline And the sun will respect every face on the deck And the ship's wise men will remind you once again that the whole